Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today and to come now to our time around the Lord's table. Thank you to our music team for preparing us in song for our time in the Word today. If you have your elements, you can begin to prepare them now. We are about to eat and drink a rather strange and exclusive meal. This is not a meal for everybody. Is this a meal for men? Yes. Is it a meal for women? Yes. How about for pale people? Check. Dark people? Check. All the rest of us mutts in the middle? Check, check. Young people? Yes. Old? Yes. The native or the foreigner? Yes and yes. Rich, poor, middle class? Yes. Healthy, sick? Yes. Poets, craftsmen, accountants, managers, mothers, CEOs, soldiers, custodians, firefighters, politicians, all of the above. Thank you. (laughs) Doesn't sound very exclusive, does it? We haven't gotten to the narrow part yet. Our Savior, on the night in which he was betrayed, told us that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. That means this meal is only for those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world, literally born of the Virgin Mary. And this meal is only for those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God, who died for our sins, literally paying the penalty of divine wrath, of death itself, that we owed a holy God. And this meal is only for those who have come to believe that Jesus is the risen Christ of God, who came back from the dead, literally conquering death, and proving that His life, His message, and His atonement on the cross were approved and accepted by the Father. And this meal is only for those who have come to believe that Jesus is God, who will return as the King, literally conquering all the nations of the world and making all things new for His eternal glory and the eternal blessedness of His elect. And so to take this bread representing His body, to take this cup representing His blood, and to consume them together this morning is a declaration that all these things we have come to believe And believing, we have come to trust in faith. And in faith, we are committing ourselves to proclaim these truths in word and in deed until the return of Christ. And so if you have believed in these truths for even a single minute, you are welcome to join in. And if you have not placed your personal faith in Jesus, then we respectfully ask you to honor the integrity of this time by simply not partaking. It's a privilege to have you here with us this morning, but this particular moment is for the family of God exclusively. And so for those who share in Christ this morning, would you join me in prayer? And then we will take together. Father, we thank you for the Christ. Even as we have sung, as we prepare to study, we... We come as those who only draw near to you through him. 
and we cannot explain nor merit why your love would be bent towards us, why you would choose to propitiate your wrath, to redirect your wrath towards one so holy and undeserving as your Son. But we take up the bread and the cup this morning with hearts full of gratitude. We acknowledge the sober privilege it is to be the children of God. We desire that our lives would be a testament to your work, that we would not steal for ourselves any glory, but that we would ensure that all the glory that you have so richly deserved and for which you have put this entire universe into existence ends up where it ought to end up, which is before your throne. We ask this morning that even now you would search out our hearts. We do not wish to take of the bread and the cup in an unworthy fashion. Would you see if there is any way within us which is unconfessed, any sin which we have not yet sought forgiveness for, that we have not done business with you about, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to even now confess it so that we might, before you, take this not in a hypocritical way, but in the sincerity of love. And we pray, Lord, that our hope in the death and in the resurrection and in the return of Christ would be magnified in our lives in the lives of our children, in the lives of our neighbors, and to the ends of the world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take together. Amen. I think it's fitting for us to take communion together in between having studied the cross and the burial. And now we get to the fun part. I enjoyed our, our singing this morning, as I said. I appreciate several of our songs focusing on the exclusivity of Christ in our experience. All I have is Christ in our theological convictions in Christ alone. I came across a study this week put out by a rather small organization known as Probe Ministries. They've done periodic surveys and polls of the Christian world. They just recently concluded and published a, a relatively small poll, oh, just over 800 people, but one that they believe to be statistically representative. I'm not a statistician, so some of you guys would probably critique this better than I would. But among their findings was an observation that, quite frankly, I found to be pretty stunning if it's indeed true and representative. This is what they found. Of those who claim to be born-again Christians, and by that they meant in this case those who have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and are convinced that they will go to heaven because they believe that Jesus died for their sins. That's how they define born-again Christian. Of that group, over 60% believe that Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus all may be valid ways to God at some level. Can you believe that? That meant, according to their survey, only two in five respondents 
who claimed a personal and saving relationship with Jesus would unequivocally declare Jesus to be an exclusive Savior. I know what some of you are thinking, it's all them youngins skewing the pole. One of the interesting observations they made was that the, love, the, the statistical chance of somebody saying these things did not change whether you were 18 all the way up to 55. The broad swath of the so-called born-again world, in their opinion, was wrestling with this issue of pluralism. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I am excited to look with you at something that makes this pluralistic perspective that's reportedly creeping into the marrow of the church for which Christ died, both ridiculous and a laughable heresy. Many religious leaders in history have lived remarkable lives, that's true, though none were perfect, like Jesus. And many religious leaders in history have taught remarkable things, though none with the authority of Jesus. Many religious leaders in history have even died for their beliefs and become martyrs for their beliefs. But Jesus alone did something no other religious leader in history has ever done. He stopped being dead. Jesus told us that no man comes to the Father but through him. And when Jesus was challenged on his authority, what makes you so special, Jesus? Oh, so many things could have been the answer, but as exhibit A, Jesus held forth to them this resurrection power. Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. Anybody else ready for some happy news after studying suffering and death for the last few weeks? Guess what? John is too. If you have a translation such as the New American Standard Bible from which I'll be reading this morning, you'll notice asterisks next to many of the verbs in this section telling us that John is switching back into, as we've seen a couple times, that intense storytelling mode in the Greek where you make everything present to suck you in, to say this is something exciting and important. I want you to come along like you were right there when it happened. And so let's do that this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you take it and turn with me to John chapter 20? Would you stand if you are able to honor the reading of God's Word this morning? And we'll be reading John 20, 1 through 9. And you'll forgive me the liberty of putting the present tense back in this passage where it is in the original Greek. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9 says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb while it is still dark and sees the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and says to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he sees the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also comes, following him, and entered the tomb, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. 
So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we are going to go on a journey of discovery along with the disciples of Jesus. Interestingly enough, we won't actually get to see Jesus yet this week. We'll get to finally see him in his resurrection in our passage next week, so sorry. But our journey this morning will follow the dawning realization of the disciples as to what has taken place. But don't miss this. It will ultimately lead us not to the credibility of their eyewitness accounts, as important as they are, but it will lead us back to the credibility of the Word of God that you even now this morning are holding in your hands. And my hope then is that we will all leave this morning rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus as the single most important doctrine for the confirmation of our Christian faith, and that we will leave more in love with God's Word and determined to prayerfully study it so that we will truly understand what it says. And so here we go into our first two verses this morning. If you're taking notes, we begin with a shocking discovery in verses 1 to 2. As you recall, Jesus has been tried, he's been crucified, he has suffered the wrath of God and the wrath of man on the cross. He has given up his spirit. He has died. He has been buried. He has now been in the tomb. And so in verse 1 of chapter 20, we pick up with this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. So you have to set this scene here. These, these followers of Jesus have just endured the worst Sabbath ever. Can you imagine if your entire life had been around, built around the cycle of Sabbath worship and then to have gone through all that they have gone through on the eve of the Sabbath and to sit there through this high and holy day of the people of God mourning the death of the Messiah? The men are still hiding, afraid that they will be put to death as well. And John gives us some atmosphere. It's still dark. It's still gloomy. Color is just beginning to enter the skies. And that city of Jerusalem that has been so riotously loud over the last few days, first with the trials and then all of the crucifixion scene, and then even on the day of the feast itself, the whole city is under an unusual hush People sleeping off their Passover celebrations, staying close to home with family. And this new week begins. A new week that must have felt like the beginning of a new world to Mary Magdalene and to the small group of women who are walking with her. If you take the accounts of the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, we know that Mary Magdalene was there, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, and perhaps some others that were simply referred to as the other women. So there's a small group of these godly disciples, these faithful disciples, heading out in the hush of dawn. And they are coming to the tomb of Jesus in an act of courage, in an act of love, to honor and to mourn Jesus. And what do they find 
as they finally draw close enough to see the pinpricks of light from Roman soldier torches as they guard the sealed tomb? Well, look what John says. They came and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. It's just hard to imagine that moment. Right? This isn't the moment of realization that all of their hopes have come true. This is just a moment of complete and total befuddlement. They're staring at the dark opening of an unsealed tomb. Nobody's around. The guards are gone. And this is not a trivial affair. It's not like, oh, I wonder if the stone accidentally fell over last night. It was a little windy. Right? These, these tombs dug into the cave sides. They had little trenches dug into a pit below the front of the cave opening. And so you would take several men to take these massive hundreds of pound rough hewn stones and you would roll them until they dropped into that trench in front of the opening of that cave. And if you've ever tried to deadlift multiple hundred pounds of stone up out of a pit, I know many of you have done this, it's hard. It takes a small group of very motivated people to get that out. And so to come and find the tomb open, they are aghast. Now what? Well, they decide it is time to get the boys up and get some help on this and figure out what we're going to do. Verse 2, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary Magdalene comes to Peter, and she comes to John. Again, John here using his favorite non-name to refer to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And she relays the information. The stone's gone. We don't know where they've taken the body of Jesus, but it's not in the tomb. She's likely here assuming that grave robbers have come. That's the only plausible explanation for who could have possibly removed a tombstone. And if the events of the past week weren't surprising enough, how it went from the triumphal entry to watching Jesus die, this shocking discovery just pushed things into the territory of the ludicrous. Have you ever had like a week where just that one last thing happens and you're like, You've got to be kidding me. Like, take that and magnify it by whatever exponent. This is, they're just going, God, what? What are you trying to do here? Why do you keep allowing these things to happen? I think we've all had weeks like that. This was the week of all weeks especially not having the benefit of knowing where this is going like we do. I want to pause here for a few observations before we jump into the rest of our text. First, I want to note that Christians are first-day people. Christians are first-day people. If you hadn't noticed, um, this isn't Saturday. The traditional day when the people of God throughout the Old Testament would gather to worship Yahweh. It is, it is interesting to me to note, even as we just read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 
all make sure to point out that this happened on the first day of the week. They didn't say, now on the third day, referring back to the timeline Jesus had given for his resurrection, but they say, no, on the first day of the week. We're actually, believe it or not, more confident about the day Jesus rose from the dead than we are the day he died. There's actually significant debate as to whether he died on Friday or Thursday. But we are confident Jesus rose on Sunday. And the entire church since then has said, so that's the day we worship. That's when we come to worship God because we come to worship in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, Christ. And so it is the day of His resurrection power that we mark as the day we assemble in His name that we may praise Him. Christians are first day people. I don't want us to lose that sense of wonder whenever Sunday ticks around. This is the day Jesus rose from the dead. Let's go worship the true and living God together. Christians are first day people and we're proud of it. Secondly, I want you to notice God isn't a chauvinist. God isn't a chauvinist. It might be expected in this culture that often had such a demeaning view of women that uh, all these gospel writers would have uh, done their best to try to make the men stand out as the ones that made all the good discoveries and figured things out and carried the torch. But it is interesting. In all four gospels, they make sure that we know it was Mary Magdalene first reported to be at his empty tomb, and later first to see the resurrected Christ. That honor was hers. And God makes sure every account of Christ and his life and death and resurrection gives her that position of honor. That is countercultural to the day that she lived in, but it is not countercultural to the God that we worship who gives to all of his children by his gracious choosing positions and opportunities of honor as he sees fit. And it is right and proper for us to look at the tremendous faith of the women throughout the life of Christ, but even here particularly highlighted on the day of his resurrection, and to honor them for their faith, for their courage, for their strength of commitment, and the depth of their love for our Savior. And when people throw the chauvinism of God in your face... Just laugh. Third, expect surprises from the great author. Expect surprises from the great author. It is true, God never does anything against his character and against his word. In that sense, he is always absolutely predictable. He will not do anything against who he is. However, he is an amazing author, very creative, and he enjoys surprising us. Has anybody noticed this? God rarely does exactly what we expect, especially exactly as we expect it. And one of the things that we're going to see this morning is that God often actually gives us a pretty good idea of what's coming. We usually just miss it because we're thinking it's supposed to work differently than what he told us. But God is a great author. And when our lives all of a sudden take this massive plot twist we didn't see coming, when all of a sudden everything we thought was orderly gets thrown into disarray, when things seem to go from bad to worse and on and on and on, do not despair. God hasn't lost a hold on things. Trust the author. 
Many of you have read books by authors you know and you love, and you're getting into the book and you're like, this is terrible, I don't want to finish. But you keep turning the page because you trust this author knows what he's doing. The payoff's going to be worth it. And if we can do that for our favorite novelist, can we not do that for the God of the universe? Expect surprises from the great author. He loves to set things up for his glory in surprising ways. And that's where these women and now Peter and John find themselves on this first day of the week. Which leads then, secondly this morning, to a bewildered investigation. A bewildered investigation. Look at verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Peter and John are on the case. And first, the funny part. They get into a race. And you have to just pause here and wonder... How much mischief would a big-mouthed Peter and a hot-headed John have gotten into over the course of their ministry with Jesus together? Right? Can you imagine those two personalities? The son of thunder, John, and Peter, who is always looking for an opportunity to get something going. Those guys must have been up to all kinds of shenanigans. And so I imagine it is with particular pleasure that John gets to write down in Holy Scripture for all of time... That in a race to the empty tomb, he won. He was faster than Peter. It could have easily simply said, the two ran and came to the tomb. But no, John makes sure we know the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. But look at verse 5. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. John reaches the tomb first, but he pulls up, bewildered and uncertain. There's a little more light at this time. John can now see down into the tomb far enough to make out linen grave wrappings, but he doesn't go in. Why not? Is he, af is he afraid of what he might see, is he still reeling from the violence that he alone among the twelve disciples witnessed at the crucifixion? Is this respect for the body of Christ, perhaps a fear of desecrating a holy place? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But as he stands there and he begins to look into this tomb, the most likely explanation for what's going on suddenly becomes not the most likely explanation. Because grave robbers wouldn't leave linens. They wouldn't go in, take this body, already bundled up with all of its expensive things, potentially, and let's stop. Let's go through the laborious process of unwrapping this whole messy affair here in the tomb, and then we'll pick and look through things, and then, and then we'll carry those off, including the body. Like, that's not what grave robbers would do. So just to find a tomb with linen wrappings in it, all of a sudden John's going, wait a minute, this doesn't quite add up. Wild animals? Well, wild animals don't roll away tombstones and dispatch Roman soldiers and then leave only linens. What is going on? 
brings us to our next point this morning, a dawning realization in verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Peter, slower at running, is faster at improvising, right? Which is not always a good thing, but he doesn't usually pause to go, hmm, is this a good idea? Passing right by John, he dives right down into the cave opening to have a look. And so then the two of them end up in this tomb and they see two things, which is really just like one thing, but in two places. The linen wrappings of Jesus here and the face cloth that would have been wrapped around his face separate here. There's no way this is the work of grave robbers. There's no way this is the work of wild animals. This isn't even like the raising of Lazarus from the dead, if you recall, who when he was raised to life came hopping out of the tomb, still bandaged up so tight he couldn't get himself out and had to get some help. Verse 8, the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. John works up the courage here to come in and look for himself. He stares at those linen wrappings. And then what must have felt like a freight train, which would have been odd since they didn't have them yet, hits him. Hits him. Finally, Jesus folded his laundry here. Right? Who could have done this? Only one person. That's the exact kind of literary flourish that I think we need to just stop and admire. You're thinking about God planning this out from before the foundations of the world. How is he going to reveal the resurrection of the Son of God to the world and to these disciples? He has infinite resources. He has endless creativity. Right? He could have had like this beam of light go shooting in the air and a massive sign arch over the entire planet saying, He is risen! He is risen indeed! But this was his decision. I love it. Two disciples standing in front of this low stone bench realizing Jesus folded his own linen wrappings. You have to imagine Peter and John never looked at folded linen the same way ever again. It's possible here that this is the first moment that John truly believed in the message of Jesus, but I don't think that's a necessary or likely conclusion. I believe this is that moment when John, without having seen him yet, truly believes that the Savior he has followed, he has loved, and he has lost is alive. Is alive. Beautiful, isn't it? What a picture. But I want us to then notice how John ends this little episode before going on to tell us of that first resurrection appearance of Jesus. Because he ends with a little editorial note that is to this effect. Right after we read, John gets it and goes, Wow! John adds this note, But we should have seen it coming. 
but we should have seen it coming. Look with me finally this morning at a foreknown certainty. A foreknown certainty. <clears throat> John chapter 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. <clears throat> this verse fascinates me for a few reasons. First, it's just a very humble and candid admission. Right? John could have just built up and, I figured it out first. I'm faster than Peter and I'm smarter than Peter. But he doesn't. He says, it all clicked. And then I realized later, it should have clicked a long time before. It's a humble and candid admission. Second, it's interesting he doesn't appeal to the words of Jesus. They had not yet understood that Jesus had told them, had told us that he would rise again in three days. How could we not have been listening to what he said? No, instead, Jesus, John here gives us this powerful support for the authority and reliability of the written word of God. They did not understand the scripture. That word scripture there literally means writings. We hadn't understood what was written down from God for us. And I think we too might be surprised how often we wouldn't be surprised if we took more time to understand what God has already told us in his writings, in his scripture. Can you imagine after this, Peter and John and the rest of the disciples pouring back over the Old Testament and finally seeing the pieces of the puzzle fit together, that puzzle that had always been right there under their noses. In some ways, even going all the way back to the Garden of Eden itself, God had begun to sow the seeds. He'd begun to lay out and hint at the reality of a Messiah who would rise. But other passages are much more explicit, and I want to take a brief journey with you in the time that remains this morning and look at the reasons why from the Scripture they should have known, we should know, that He must rise again. And I'll begin this morning in Isaiah 53, that wonderful passage in the Old Testament, probably clearest of all passages as to the substitutionary death of Christ, one that we know well. If you have your Bibles, you can look there with me, Isaiah chapter 53. It's a heavy-hitting chapter. Begins in verse 1 by simply saying, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Wonderful things are about to be described here, but things that will be viewed skeptically. Then it describes the coming of the chosen one of God, that he, he is going to come not with some handsome visage that we would find him particularly attractive, that he is not going to be a star in the pop culture. He's going to instead be despised and forsaken. He's not going to be a man with an easy life. And a flashing grin, he's a man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief. 
He's not going to be esteemed and viewed highly by people. Verse 4, But surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. And yet at the same time, we then esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him by his scourging. We are healed because all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And for that reason, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering, comma, comma, not period, Throughout history, Jews don't know quite what to do with this passage. In their annual read-through of the Torah scroll, they skip this chapter. They read Isaiah 1 through the middle of 52. Then they skip to the end of 53, and they pick up and they read 54 to the end. They don't know what to do with this passage. Some of the rabbis teach, it's about the suffering of the nation. It can't be about the suffering of the nation because it's about the one who suffers for the nation. This is the Messiah. But he dies. The Messiah can't do that. He has to reign. But he dies. Back to that comma. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. Just in case you were thinking, well, maybe that was before he died. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. It's all right there. Right? That wasn't hidden. He must die. And he must rise. That's what the scriptures have said. And as they went back and they began to look over this and they began to study this, it finally all clicked together. And I want to end then this, our time this morning looking at a part of a sermon on the resurrection that I think is pretty profound. And you'll have to agree because it's in the Bible. And it was preached by one of the two men that were standing in this empty tomb on this first Easter morning. And so, in closing, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. 
And we'll pick up in verse 22. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. This is the day of Pentecost. So we're flashing forward a little bit in time. Christ has risen. He's appeared. He's ascended into heaven after giving to his disciples a charge to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth with the authority that he has over all things. They have gone to Jerusalem to wait for him there. And there the Holy Spirit has come upon them in power. And they come out and they're speaking in tongues in the known languages of all of these people that have once again flooded Jerusalem. And Peter gets up and he says, I have a sermon. And he's been preaching and teaching. And we get to verse 22. He's coming to his main point. And he says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. When's the last time we saw that phrase? Written on a placard on a cross, wasn't it? Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Right? We're not talking hundreds of years later. These same people saw these things themselves. This man, verse 23, delivered over by you scheming tricksters that were trying to ruin all of God's plans. Wait, that's, that's not what it says, is it? Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was his plan. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. There are very few things you can say this world, even still in its brokenness, longs for more than an end to the agony of death. You can't escape it. Even as a church this weekend, we were marking death. But we don't mark it hopelessly because of what Peter's about to tell us. You might say it was fair for them to ask Peter, how could we have known, Peter? This nobody named Josh from some nowhere city named Nazareth saying these amazing things that were blasphemous in our ears. How could we have known that he was the Messiah? Peter says, because you should have read your Bible. Verse 25, for David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's way of saying, I want you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 16. 
verses 8 through 11 that he has just quoted for us. So if you don't want to actually turn, it's right there. It's in Acts 2. And then he explains the passage. Verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. So far, no disagreement, right? And his tomb is with us to this day. What's the point of that? Uh, David has undergone decay, ladies and gentlemen. Right? David died. We put him in a tomb. We know where that tomb is. We know nobody's gone in, and nobody's come out. He rotted. So what's he talking about? And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne... Oh, now we're going back even to other passages. Here he's quoting loosely from places like Psalm 132, verse 11, from Psalm 89, verse 3. And he says, are we starting to put this together? David had been told by God, one of your descendants is coming, and he is going to sit on your throne, and he is going to reign from that throne forever. An eternal king is coming from the line of David. And David knew that. And because he was a prophet and he was looking ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises, verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And I... I, I would have loved to have been in the crowd because we, I'll, I'll cheat ahead. At the end, 3,000 of them come to Christ, right? And I would love to, to have been able to just kind of watch that mood shift in the crowd from starting, what are those guys saying? Are they all drunk, right? That was their initial skepticism. I don't understand what they're saying. They're just babbling like a bunch of drunk guys. And then the guys are like, actually, I'm from around the Mediterranean. He's speaking my language with a perfect accent. Right, they're slow... They start with this incredulous, okay, what is going on? Then Peter gets up and he starts preaching to them and he's saying, hey, Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And they're like, no, we killed him. And he's not dead anymore. You're ridiculous, Peter. Resurrection? Half of our, half of our spiritual leaders here in Jerusalem, the entire Sadducean sect, they don't even believe there is such a thing as a resurrection, Peter. The Messiah conquers. He doesn't die. And what is this resurrection thing? And Peter says, this is what God told us was going to happen. And it was so fun to watch as that began to click. And people, you know, if you ever watch body language? Right? And watch the whole crowd start going through that as they're like, wait a second this actually begins to make sense. And as the Spirit of God is beginning to move among them and give them understanding and open their eyes and move them towards regeneration, that would have been fun to be there, wouldn't it? He looked ahead and spoke. This is the authority of the Word of God that Peter is elevating here. And Peter is taking his stand as a witness to God's truth. And that's our role today as well. As Peter expounds the scriptures for these people, God is doing his work in their hearts. And that is our job. To say, my life is a testimony to the truth of the scriptures.
my experience is a corroboration of the truth of the experience or the truth of the scriptures. I want to tell you what God did through me according to the scriptures. Peter is not up here to proclaim his truth. Right, we got this whole thing in our culture. Everyone wants to stand up and speak their truth. Small rant. Saw this week one Donald the Trump is starting a new social network. Did you guys see that? It's called apparently Truth Social. And instead of posting tweets, they call it posting truths. And so you post your truths. And everybody gets to post their truth on Truth Social. That does not help the situation. (laughs) Peter is not standing up to say, Hey, everybody, I have my truth. No, Peter is standing up to say, God spoke in his holy word, and to the truth of his word, we are all witnesses. Now you need to respond. That has always been and always must be the message of the Christian church. God has spoken. It is true. Of this we are all witnesses. Come join. Come join. And that's why he can conclude with this punchline, verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, wait a second, there's only one Lord, right? Oh, hold on. The Lord said to my Lord, those are two people, uh, what? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Oh boy. That's Psalm 110 verse 1. Therefore, verse 36 Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We can extend that plea from Israel to the world as the rest of the New Testament does. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, both Master and Savior, this Jesus whom we are all guilty of crucifying for it was our sin that put him on that cross. And as the music team comes forward to lead us in a closing song this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not let us dare to cast the slightest shade of doubt upon the miraculous glory of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a shameful thing that throughout church history there has been so many times when people will say, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but it's you know, intellectually uh, embarrassing to claim that you know, he rose from the dead. He must rise or he isn't the Messiah. Thus saith the Scriptures. Let us not dare to tolerate Jesus sharing a platform with dead men who made religious claims and then were claimed by the grave. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music 
but its own.